This is the Breaking Labels Podcast, and I'm Rosanna Gill. Each episode, we'll discuss labels that have confined the stories of my guests at one point or another and their journeys to thrive beyond them. Some labels are external, and others we put on ourselves as limiting beliefs. But regardless of where the label comes from, we're here to break it because we were meant for so much more. I have to tell you that I am struggling to think of an intro that is going to do any justice to this conversation with Dr. Rob Kelly. But what I can tell you is that it is not a conversation that I plan to have, but Someone reached out to me, suggested him for the podcast, and I thought, okay, sure, why not? But I didn't know why I was supposed to talk to him. I didn't know where the conversation would go other than the fact that we would talk about addiction. And I mean, as evidenced by past episodes, it's definitely something I have a curiosity about and something that I think affects so many families. So That part was a no-brainer to me, but it wasn't necessarily good timing, I didn't think, because I was either right about to start the March Soul Shaker series, which was all female, no male interviews whatsoever. So I, I knew that this episode wasn't going to come out for at least a month, but over the course of the conversation with Dr. Kelly, I realized that this conversation wasn't just for the podcast. This was a conversation I needed to hear. And you might notice that you're not going to hear much conversation from me because I was crying during a good chunk of this interview. And I'm not going to tell you why. I just want you to hear this interview and this conversation. And at the end, I'll I'll explain the tears. But I hope that this interview has half the impact on you than it has had on me. Because if it does, well, my job and the purpose of this podcast is, is met. So with that, here is the conversation with Dr. Rob Kelly. What took you to, so, to Dallas from London or from UK? I came over here for two weeks only to work with a, uh, a church in uh, Plano, a uh, very affluent church. Their youth ministry had a few crack cocaine problems. So I came over for two weeks, <clears throat> two weeks with the money, two weeks with the clothes and everything. And as soon as I stepped off the plane, I knew I'd never come back home. Something <laughs> happened. So 14 years later, here I am. Wow. I know. Crazy story. Well, also, that was in- it's interesting to me that at this very affluent church, they were calling you in to talk about crack cocaine. Was that such a big concern in their membership? It was. What, 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 we, see, what we see in affluent churches is parents give the kids a bunch of money, then leave them alone. Well, they're either drinking, working, or, you know, never in the house. So you have a lot of... Uh, alcohol and drug misuse in youngsters. It was rife, you know, it was destroying Plano. At one time, Plano used to be the most affluent place in Texas. Uh, So yeah, there was a lot of problems there. Wow. 
I never would have thought of that. Well, do you want to start with your personal story? I would love to know. I mean, obviously you at, at have dealt with addiction, but how did it get to that point or where did it begin? For me, it began back in, uh, I can't remember what year, but I was nine years old. I was on stage with a musical family and um, we played the Liverpool Centre. It's where the Beatles were famous for. And I played the first half and it was a huge crowd. And I was so nervous when I came off the first half that my uncle gave me half a beer to see if it calmed me down for the second half. And sure enough, it did. But there started my drinking career all through school. Not crazy, probably once a week, twice a week into college every single day. Um, and then it just got worse and worse until the most horrific things in the world happened to me. Ended up homeless. And uh, my schooling was Oxford. So it wasn't that too big, you know, it was a proper school with you know lots of money and lots of esteem. And um, so I went from there to uh, eventually I got married, had two kids, had a big house, cars, and then I lost it all and became homeless for 14 months. Wow. Yeah, it's a crazy story. So you became a doctor while battling addiction. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. How? I mean, I don't even know how you, uh, well, one, that speaks to your level of intelligence because I couldn't even imagine becoming a doctor without an addiction. But now you're battling this this huge demon while pursuing a pretty rigorous study. Yes. Um, now, or did that actually feed into the addiction? Did it help to have that while you're going through the rigorous program? Interesting. No one's ever asked that question. <clears throat> I guess it did because, well, first of all, I come from a, a, a project, as you would call it. So we grew up poor. Mum um, was a cleaner. Dad worked for the gas company. Uh, and then most of the time she didn't work. So there wasn't a lot of money around. And I just, I, I, I got a job at Abbey Road, if you know what Abbey Road is. It's mm -hmm. where, it's the most famous recording studio in London. It's where the Beatles, everyone who's everyone's recorded at Abbey Road where... They've got the famous photograph outside Abbey Road where they're all walking across on one of the albums. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I got a bass playing position for about three or four years. And uh, with that money, I, I had connections because I'm an alcoholic. The alcoholic has the addicted mind. We'll go to any lens to make sure we succeed. And I found a friend uh, through a Freemason. And then he introduced me or made some lot of calls to, uh, to, to Oxford University and got me in. So... The imposter syndrome was always there with me, is I don't belong here. I mean, when we sat down for the first lunch, there were five, five forks and three knives and two spoons at the front. I'm like, I don't know what to do with these. Mm -hmm. So I had to watch other people. It was really embarrassing uh, because I didn't know any etiquette whatsoever. And then uh, I watched everybody else and become kind of them. I, I'm pretty much a chameleon. I can fit into any any kind of role. Uh, but yeah, maybe it did a bit because I'm at this school and everything's going good and uh, the drinking got worse. And well, it didn't get to the worst until after that. It was manageable. You know, most of the time I had a hangover and most of the time I was drunk. But, you know, it's just uh, it's crazy. But high functioning alcoholic is what I used to be. Now, if I tried, took a drink today or a drug today, I would be in big trouble from the first day. 
because it's a it's an ongoing uh, disease that never gets any better. You know, it always gets worse. It's a progressive illness. So it wasn't that bad during college. And then when I come out of college and the police force for a year or two years, I can't remember how long, I got fired. That's when my drinking took off. I got fired from there. Uh, Did you say the police force? Yes. The irony. Okay. I know. I know. Now, what was most embarrassing was most of the police, uh, when I was homeless, most of the police had picked me up and locked me up or took me back to my parents were the people I used to work with. Oh, wow. Oh, sorry. The people I was going to work with. I'm sorry. So when I finally became a police officer, there was a few people going, oh, my God, Rob, you've come from there to here kind of thing. But a lot of the stuff in my head gets mixed up, dates and times. But yeah, so I did that and then I started my own telecoms company and then then all the trouble started, like the big trouble started with my children and my wife and suicide and all that stuff to follow. So it was pretty nasty. What was the the critical moment or the one where things kind of exploded and came to a head? So was in the house early, early morning, 2.30, 3 o'clock, I think. Uh, I woke up. I came down the stairs because I knew I was dying to drink vodka. So I come down the stairs to go to the kitchen because I knew I had some vodka left, like half a bottle of Handel vodka, the big one. So I came downstairs early morning. <clears throat> I, um, I found the vodka and I put it on the side of the counter and I turned around to get a crystal glass. I said, hey, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not going to drink it from the bottle. It's how insane I was. I'm getting a crystal glass, probably $10 the glow, whatever it is. Well, when I was turning around, my wife followed me downstairs and the children were in bed. And then uh, she snatched the bottle off the side of the counter and said, I think you've had enough. Now, she was right. I had work in four hours. I had a board meeting, all this. I had to drive to work. I'd been drinking for like all day, all night for the last six months. I was well over the legal limit to drive. So what I should have done in hindsight is I should have said, thank you, Janet. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Margaret. I get mixed up with my wives. My wife will kill me now. Uh, and thanked her and gone back to bed. But what I did is I took a kitchen knife out and I stabbed her three times because oh, she wouldn't let me finish drinking. Yeah. This is the alcoholic insanity that I was in. So I call the ambulance and when I heard the ambulance, I had a cab waiting. When I heard the ambulance in the background, I knew it was for her. So uh, I jumped into a cab, flew to the airport, and absconded to Spain. And I stayed in Spain for th- about three months. And she came out of hospital, and then she wanted to press charges. Uh, and then a, an attorney and my dad, and everyone was fighting the case. And eventually they dropped the charges because she didn't want to continue. I got an affidavit or some sort of paperwork off her attorney to say that I'm free and I can come home. So I came home and I walked up to my house. And when I got in, there were three suitcases lined up at the door and she was dressing the children to go out. And I said, where are you going? She said, I'm leaving you. We're going to my mom's. And I said, well, you can, you can't leave me. Do you know who I am? And uh, she left. And With all due respect, you're asking her, do you know who I am after you stabbed her? I know, right? That's the insanity of the disease. Yeah. Oh, oh, it gets worse, by the way. Right? So she left. I got hold of my attorney, who does a lot of business, probably a million pound a year of us. And I told him to get to the courts and get my kids back tomorrow. 
and I will give him a check for, I don't know how much, Rosanna, but let's say £10,000. Back in the day, it was a lot of money. Next day he came, he had my two children. I brought my two children, I gave him the check, I closed the door, I took him into the front room, and I put him down in front of the room, and I turned the TV on, and they were watching it. And I walked to the kitchen, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if I had one beer to celebrate getting my kids back? And that's all it was. Three days later, when the police kicked the door down, because I'd been unconscious or in blackout, all bottles strewn around the house. I've been to the liquor store and back. Must have left the kids on their own ages, one and three. Um, For the two or three days I was unconscious, the children hadn't been fed or changed diapers. They grabbed me. They threw papers at me, which says unfit father. And then they literally took the kids off me. When I got to the door, my wife was there, the authorities, the police, the mother-in-law was there, and they started to walk them down the path. And the police officers just looked at me in disgust. These are the guys I work with, because now my alcoholism had really taken it off. As we were walking down the path, my eldest one, aged three years old, said three things to me. She says, Daddy, Daddy, please don't go. Then she says, Daddy, Daddy, please get better. And as they got to the gate and opened the gate before they went out around the corner, she says, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And I couldn't do it. So when I close, I'm crying, everyone's crying. Police are crying. It was just a sad moment, you know? And then six or seven months after, the wife had gone, the kids had gone, the houses had gone, the cars had gone, the business had gone. Parents refused to speak to me. Brother and sister disowned me. I went from my house to my parents, to friends, to associates, to the streets. I remember sat on the streets on the first day and it was cold back in England. And I was thinking to myself, where did it all go wrong? Mm. And I couldn't put my finger on it where it all, because it was so gradual and so sneaking that, and before in days, I used to call home, you know, nobody would answer the phone. And if we did, if my man said she'd put the phone down straight away, I was barred from the house. I went near the house, I'd be arrested. Uh, if I contact my brother and sister, you know, they would tell the police that I'd been in contact. So I lived on the streets for 14 months. There were four or five suicide attempts and two actual suicides where my heart stopped and they brought me back on the side of a road. So that was it. I mean, that was I was doomed. I wanted to die on the streets. You know, 97% of people in Manchester, United Kingdom, who end up homeless, die on the streets. And I said, yeah, I woke up one morning and the guy, I slept on a bench. Uh, and I woke up the next morning, the guy next to me had been stabbed for his sneakers. That's how horrendous it was on the street. I had to fight every day to stay alive. And that was my life. From musician at Abbey Road, Oxford University, beautiful family, houses, cars, lots of money to homelessness. And that, my friends, for those who are listening, is alcoholism. Can I ask a question? And it's something I've heard people say. And I just, I don't know how to argue it or what to respond to it. But when somebody says, if things are bad enough, you'll figure it out and you'll change. I would think at some point in those 14 months when you were homeless and after watching your children leave or having to leave your children, you would have felt this is bad enough. Like I have to change this. What actually is going through somebody's mind who is dealing with addiction? Why is it not that simple? 
Well, first of all, it's a disease. And the reason why it's a disease, because it's a biological predisposition uh, drop down to the family with self-sabotaging neural pathways. That's what alcohol, I can't stop for drug addiction. I'm not a drug addict, though I took drugs. I'm an alcoholic. So we are born with this brain. You cannot, and I say cannot, drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. It's impossible. So we're born this way. Now, drug addicts, I don't want to get into it, but you can take enough drugs to become dependent, to become addicted to. With alcohol, it's completely different. From the first drink, we're done. Somehow, it's going to end really bad from day one. And mine was nine years old, so my, my, my stuff was mapped out. Now, mix that with the childhood trauma. Every alcoholic has childhood trauma. Now, we have to determine or decide what childhood trauma is. Well, to the normal person, this is a response from mom. Hey, Johnny, get down off that chair. Oh, God, he's such an idiot. You know, carry on. This is what the addicted predisposition brain attached to the PTSD hears. Get down off that chair, you stupid idiot. And that's what we hear. So as we hear this, as we go along, what happens, especially if it's in the family, which it is, but it might not be mom and dad, but it will be in grandparent, is a little bit of neglect because mom and dad are drinking or, you know, one of them is at work. So the abandonment comes in. And the shame comes in and the remorse comes in. And what happens in my brain, there's a part of the back of the brain just near the prehistoric brain called the hypothalamus. Now, the hypothalamus is a fight or flight part of the brain. What it tells the normal person is a survival instinct. Drink water, eat food, run or stay. That's the hypothalamus job. Mm -hmm. Okay. What it tells the alcoholic is to drink alcohol whenever feelings change. So a real alcoholic, and this is where the invisible line is, if you can, if you're heavy drinking and can stop straight away without nothing at all, no matter how much you drink or how long, if you can stop, you're not the real alcoholic. You are a heavy drinker. Real alcoholics cannot stop. It's impossible once we take that first drink to stop. So I have a mental obsession with alcohol. Alcohol will fix everything. Mm. And what a lot of people think is while they're sober, they crave for alcohol. It's impossible. You can't crave for anything that's not already in your body. So my mind will tell me it's different this time. I'll get away with it this time. I'm not drinking whiskey. No, I'll drink that beer. But I'll have the strong beer, not the weak beer. And what happens is I take the first drink and all bets are off. There's no end time. If, you, if you're having five or six beers in the, in the bar with your friends and you can stop and go home, you're not an alcoholic, the real alcoholic. Because I can't stop. When you take the first drink, can you stop? If the answer is no, then you're probably alcoholic, even though it's the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. 10 DUIs, guys, do not make you an alcoholic. It's a predisposition that's passed down from generations. So I'm born with these neural pathways, remapped and distorted by childhood trauma, going into my younger days or teens when I take the alcohol, and then I'm done straight away. We're on a downward spiral. Now, that might take 50 years. It might take five months. We don't know why. But sooner or later, you'll end up in the same place as I ended up, without a doubt. Because the wives can't stack it anymore. I mean, literally, they can't take it. You know, I mean, my mom, when I was homeless, I found out when, I, when we got back together again, is she used to pray 
Rosanna, pray that I died and the police would come and tell her just so she could relax. Because every night she was worrying about me. Mm-hmm. And this is the stuff we cause that we don't know about. That I infected everybody I come into contact with, with my disease. And a lot of people, well, you could just stop drinking. Really, please educate yourself about alcoholism. It's re- I've been studying this for 20 odd years. I've been studying uh, brain science for 20 odd years around alcoholism. I'm probably one of the best knowledge people around with the modern addiction world, as in brain science, to stop this deal or arrest it for a day at a time. So we can't just stop. And that's where we have the problem, whereas no other people can. Or heavy drinkers or abusers of alcohol can. We can't. So what is the line then? Well, the line is you can't stop, but like an abuser of alcohol. So that is somebody who, is that somebody who would go to rehab as well or? Not necessarily. There's there's three types of of, uh, what calls the very loosely abusers or alcoholics. There's the moderate drinker who can stop anytime he wants. Mm -hmm. So it goes out Friday and Saturday, he drinks a ton of stuff. Everyone goes, oh my God, Johnny's crazy. He must be an alcoholic. Laugh, laugh, laugh. That guy can stop from work on Monday morning. Then we get the absolute heavy drinker that really can't stop on a daily basis and probably turns up work a little bit drunk from the night before. And the first thing he does when he gets home is drink. That's the heavy drinker. Now, given a sufficient reason, such as, I don't know, the the police warning him or his wife saying, I'm going to leave, or the doctor saying, if you don't finish drinking, you're going to die, that guy will stop or moderate. The alcoholic, fear won't stop us because... The brain is saying drink. Excuse me. Bless you. The, the brain is saying drink, and that's why. But here's the deal. From the, from the alcoholic, we have to go through the very quickly moderate drinking, which lasts days or weeks or months, then into heavy drinking, then into alcoholism. So if you're not an alcoholic, you can stop at any of them stages. If you are an alcoholic, the first two, you know, heavy drinking and moderate drinking is just a process before you get to the final thing. And there's no defining line. It's an invisible line that we go across that we can't go back. So let's go back to you being homeless for 14 months and these multiple suicide attempts. What did happen? Where did the shift come from to, to turn? I suppose, is it, is it too dramatic to say to turn your life around or to go a different direction? No, not at all. I mean, you know, I remember sat on the streets lots of nights and, crying over my daughter's birthdays or Christmas or, you know, I used to walk past houses at Christmas and look at all these families having dinner and I pray to God one day that I could just have one day, you know, in somebody's family, not even mine, just sat down because it was so cold and I was left alone. I was abandoned, Rosanna, abandoned. That's my biggest fear. Abandonment and going broke like I did are my biggest fear today. All them years on today, that's my biggest fear. So what happened to me personally is after the last suicide ascent where they brought me back to life again on the side of a horrible back road that was smelly and wet and cobbled and, you know, I, I, I dropped down to my hands and knees one night. I always remember it's around Sunday night or Monday morning, probably around one, three, two, I don't know. I dropped down to my hands and I started to cry from my belly. I mean, the tears were were coming and my belly hurt because I was crying so much. Now, here's the interesting part. I wasn't crying because I'd lost my children. 
I wasn't crying because I'd lost my wife, my money, my cars, my parents. I was crying because that was the first time when I realized I couldn't stop drinking. So it took all of that for me to realize that I couldn't do. So I remember looking up to the sky and saying, and I quote, if there is a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. 30 seconds later, a guy walked around the corner on the back streets of Manchester, not the main road. He'd missed his Bible study bus and he'd walked about an hour to pass me to go home. And as he passed me, he looked down and he said, you okay? And I said, no, I'm dying. So then he said, hey, I'm an alcoholic, a Christian. I go to meetings. You've got to come back to my house. You can stay as long as you want. So he took me back to his house and I shaved for the first time in nine months and I showered for the first time in six months and they gave me some clothes. And, and, then, uh, and then we went to a meeting the next day, a 12-step meeting. And I hated those meetings. I've been there time and time again. But it was a dry bed for that night. And I remember going to the meeting. And what happened to me was that, that, that they do it in a circle in the UK. Well, well, most of them do. I was sat in a circle and the war story started. Everyone was bragging and how much they used to drink and everything. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. And about halfway around the room, this guy said, my name's John. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I was like, what did he just say? So... He talked about the book that 12 Step People use, or some people. And after he finished sharing, the meeting was over. I walked over to him, and I always remember saying this to him. Just, can you sponsor me? And he said, no, I can't, unfortunately. But what I will do is I'll be your spiritual advisor for a period of eight weeks or something like that. Now, here's the real interesting part that will probably shock you. He told me to buy a dictionary. He told me to buy this book, and he told me to bring a little Bible with me. Every Wednesday night, I would walk to that man's house an hour in the rain, in the snow, in the sun, wherever it was. And during the week, we'd give me homework to do, to look in this book, what to find. And then we'd walk there. Next Wednesday, we'd walk. We'd go over the work I've done during the week. And then he'd teach me some stuff about alcoholism and, uh, and the big book. Did that for eight weeks. After the eight weeks was over, we did the steps in two days because that's what it tells us in the book to do. When I walked out that man's house, I knew that if I never come across, if I, if I stopped doing what I, he told me to do, I would relapse. But if I continued to do what he told me, then I would have an amazing life. Now, he also told me that things are going to start changing from day one, which I mm -hmm. thought, there's no way. I'm living in this guy's house. There's no prospects. The very next day, somebody offered me a part-time job. <laughs> which was awesome. I was so amazed. Within a one or two weeks, that, that job turned into a full-time job. With, with the money that I was getting, a friend of a friend of a friend made a call and gave me, I got a car that I could pay starting next month. When I got my first paycheck after the month, I went to the gas station and I bought John a little teddy bear and a card. And I wrote to John, thank you, John, for introducing me to God who took the compulsion to drink away. I folded the card and I walked back to his house another hour, you know, because I walked there. I don't think the car was available for whatever time, but it was definitely mine. But I remember walking back there for whatever reason. I got to the house and I knocked on the door and there was nobody in. There's these little curtains up that was always there, but I just knocked them. Anyway, the next door neighbor came out on the right-hand side and she says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, can you tell me where John's moved to? And she said, John? 
there's been no in that apartment for at least six months. So I thought, obviously, she's crazy. So I said, thank you. She closed the door. I went for the light, light to go out. And then I went down the other side to the left-hand side. And I banged on this guy's door. Now I'm nervous. And he opened the door. And I said, hey, can you tell me where John's relocated to? I was there a couple of weeks ago. And he said, you wasn't there. I said, yeah, I wasn't here. No, that's been a vacant for at least 12 months. There's been no one in that apartment for 12 months. It's been locked up. I know that for the fact because the council have been around and telling me there's something wrong and they can't and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I thought, oh, my goodness. So I went back to the meeting because I wanted to find this guy. And I knew I had the right address because I'd been there for eight weeks of time. I got to the meeting and I went to the chairman. I said, do you remember that guy I was talking to? And he said, no. And I said, the guy I was talking to after the meeting, and we went over to the coffee machine, we had a conversation. And everyone started laughing. And I grabbed hold of this guy by the scruff of the neck and I rammed him against the wall. And don't, I said, don't you ever, you know, take, do, you know, try and embarrass me in front of people. And a couple of guys dragged me off and said, hey, hey, Rob, calm down. No, we saw you at the, at the coffee machine speaking to yourself. Never found that guy. You're and kidding stuff, me. No. And the stuff he taught me was was absolute unbelievable. Even about the, 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 the book. It was just stuff that you hadn't seen before. And uh, yeah, I, and he guaranteed me to, that people could recover from alcoholism and addiction. And that was one of the things he said, I will take you. God said to me, and I don't want to get all godly with people, but I heard a message that uh, I will take you far away from home if you keep working with people and guarantee they can recover. And that was it. And uh, I don't know how long later, but I found myself in America and I've been doing that for a long time. Oh, my God. I know. Crazy. And there's been loads of stuff I've been between. Uh, when I first came here after about three or four weeks, uh, I was I was a bit sick and I started vomiting blood. And I didn't have any insurance because I was just put in for my green card. So finally they, they rushed me to hospital. And uh, when I woke up in a hospital bed, they'd done all the tests and everything. And a couple of doctors were there with, I don't know, my wife at the time and a nurse, and they just said, look, we've got some real bad news for you. And I'm, okay, what is it? And she said, you have cancer of the esophagus. And the op itself, you know, the success rate is not great because it's here. It's all you breathe and everything. So we really need to call your parents back home in England, as my wife had been talking to them. So the doctor made the call back home. My parents he was speaking to for about 30 minutes. Now, my mom had cancer as well, so she was absolutely distraught. My dad was upset. You can imagine. He put me on the phone. I couldn't speak. I was sobbing so much. I was trying to, I was trying to tell him sorry for the stuff that I'd done. And I knew that this was it, that this was my life done. However, my wife kept walking up and down the road saying, this is not it, this is not it. It's not brought you this far to do nothing. So they gave me a pre-med and I went down. Next thing I knew, I woke up back in the room to a blur of about six or seven doctors, um, four guys in suits, two nurses and my wife. And the first thing I did when I woke up is she, they thrust a, a clipboard at me with paper and said, just sign the paper. That's what my wife was saying, just sign the paper. And I was like, what is it? Just sign the paper. So I remember saying really loud. So I signed the paper as best as I could. And then the doctor sat down and he said, okay, so thank you for signing the paper, uh, which was a, 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 a legal thing so I wouldn't sue them. 
because when we took it down and did a final x-ray, it said the cancer had gone. We couldn't find it. And stuff like that has always happened to me since that night on the streets. It's like I'm being protected by somebody to go out and do this thing. And that's what I do today. I'm very loud about my recovery. I'm very um, direct about it. I curse when I'm speaking. I grab your attention and I thrust it to you. And if you want it, it's there. And if you don't, it's just a good story. Mm. But going back again, though, to, to my teens, I was so embarrassed. I couldn't speak in front of 10 people, let alone national TV with, I don't know how many millions of people watching and, and, and talking events. So it's like I've had this complete change over the years to the person I am today. And what's even stranger is I dress and act not like a 60-year-old. I dress and act like a 20-year-old. And my main people that I get on with isn't the older guys that come or the older women. It's the guys between 17 and 20-odd. So I'm thinking, maybe in my head, I've gone back to the days ju just after I got off the streets. Maybe mm. that was the psychic change that mentally I'm not really 60. I'm only, you know, 20 or 30. And I, I truly feel that today. Apart from my body sometimes gives me a, you know, I mentioned that I'm, I am nearly 60, but um, no, I just, I, I live life to that. We have a couple of sayings. Um, I love, we love what we do because we do what we love. And the other one uh, is just, I live, in, I live in the dream instead of dreaming and living. Because remember when I told you on the streets, I used to walk past that house with all the family. We, are, we have a really big house right now in San Antonio. And we often bring alcoholics around and we call it Happy Sunday or Sober Saturday or whatever it is. And we entertain a lot of people because I know there are other people today walking around going, I wish I could just go in that house and have a fun. So we have all sorts of people around. I, I, uh, I, I'm just, I don't know. I have a gift. Now, I love it when I tell people, they go, oh, my God, you're such amazing. I go, listen, I can't mend an engine. I can't paint a wall. I can't do I'm rubbish at stuff like that. But getting people well and playing the guitar, I'm pretty good at. And that's my life today. I got married again about six years ago. We just celebrated our sixth year. I married a girl that changed my life, who supported me, who's so smart and intelligent and loving that he's taken me to a different level of living. Now, I still have the traits of being, I always want everyone to be perfect, so I'm still argumentative. I still snap at people, especially my wife. I don't know how she puts up with it. Uh, but down underneath, um, I'm just, I'm, it's a miracle. Why am I alive? It's a miracle. So that's all I can say. What is one of the biggest misconceptions that you see in family members or loved ones of somebody dealing with alcohol addiction? Well, with the family members, it's always denial, you know, but when the, and, the, and, the, and the addicts is kind of the same. But what's important that we found out a few years ago is that if a, if a let's say a man, for instance, has got his wife and his kids, or a young guy living with his mom and dad, if you are going to treat the addict and alcoholic, you have to treat the family. Oh. Because what happens is uh, recovery has its own language. So let's say, for instance, the house speaks Japanese. Mm -hmm. Just for instance. We take him away, or we do our course with him, and we speak German. We teach him a new language. Recovery has a, a whole new language. Then we stick him back in the Japanese-speaking house. What's going to happen? Well, he's going to start speaking Japanese again to fit in, because we all want to fit in. Mm -hmm. What we do is we take the guy, we teach him German, and while the guy's going through that, we teach the Japanese house German. 
So when we put him back into the house, he's going to start continuous speaking German. So we believe this is why we do the IOP usually now. We don't do inpatient anymore. Is that people must recover in their own community where normal hazards and daily life is taking place. Because what happens is people go away for 30, 60, 90 days, and then they come out of this bubble and go, yeah, yeah, yeah I've got three months sobriety. And within days, they're drinking because things come out fast and furious that they're not really sure of how to do. What we do during the three months you're with us every single day for an hour is we walk them through that stuff and we bring the family and we put families back together and we reunite kids with a, with dad, you know, and we try and find dad a job or, or start his own business. And that's what we do. It's not about the alcohol and drugs. And I'm going to say something now that you might find, not you, but your, your viewers and listeners is alcohol and drugs have got very little to do with alcoholism and addiction. Very little. It's just a symptom. It's a head game. It's an inside job, guys. That doesn't surprise me at all, but you're right. I, the only reason that doesn't surprise me is because of the conversations I've had with people. And it always comes back to the same thing. It's whatever they're grappling with inside that they don't know how to cope with. If you don't go back to the scene of the crime, as we call it, oh. the trauma, and clear that stuff up, they're like a zip file on a computer. You stick stuff in since you're three and four, you stick it in the zip file, you take no notice of it. And one day, one day while you're just mosing around the screen, you'll click on that zip file and everything will come at you at once and you won't be able to cope with it. So what we have to do is we have to clear all that stuff up and then we take you into a different place psychologically and the family's in a different place. And recovery is such a beautiful thing. You know, I wish recovery on every single person that's suffering because we don't know who we hurt. We don't know how badly our effect and the ripple effect of how many people are worried and sick about you while you're in oblivion somewhere. And we get people to lie for us. And my wife, oh, he's okay. He's just having a sleep. I was drunk upstairs. My mom to my dad, oh, no, he's okay. He's just he's, he's tired. I was drunk. Mm -hmm. So we get people to lie for us, which is the worst thing in the world. So it's just, it's a family recovery, guys. And but we've, we've worked with some great mums and dads and, and uh, sons and daughters. And every single time we take them to a different place. And we often get cards and thank yous through the mail because people can't believe what we do. But remember, God told me to guarantee they can recover unless they blatantly don't want to. So it's kind of why we've got such a high percentage success rate is because of that. What do we, what about the parents? Because I, I feel like there have to be some who have a hard time reconciling that there is a trauma that their child went through, that even though they tried the best they could as parents, there is something in their child's life that they're unhappy about, and that is what's driving them to drink. Yes, and, and like you say, I'm, <clears throat> this is not a blame game, guys, by the way. This is not mm -hmm. my parents were this, and that's got nothing to do with that. It's how the alcoholic brain receives that information more than anything. So there is neglect. There is abuse sometimes. You know, there is uh, trauma. It doesn't have to be a car crash or a plane crash or even a divorce. With the alcoholic brain, it's very important. So we have to explain to the, to the moms and dads that, hey, you did nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. You see, there's nothing. The brain doesn't recognize the difference between war in Afghanistan and war in the house. Mm -hmm. Both have PTSD. They mm -hmm. are just the same. 
You're walking on edge. You don't know it's going to kick off. You have to alert 24 hours a day. The brain can't sleep. The central nervous system is always on because it's going to go any second. It's the same thing, but it's not the parents' fault. They did the best they could, and that's okay. Maybe one of them suffered from alcoholism and addiction, and that's okay. What we're saying is this new science that we found can fix all that. So you have to walk them through what I hear and what you would hear from a parent talking to us is completely different. Because I will say to you the same scenario, get off the chair. I go, what did mom and dad say to you? And you go, oh, they told me to get off the chair. They were laughing at me. I shouldn't have got on the chair. What did you hear, Rob? I heard him screaming at me, saying, get down off. And I heard you stupid idiot. They said it was a stupid idiot. That's what I hear. And that's through the PTSD going forward is, my wife can be looking on Facebook, Rosanna, and she can see someone and go, oh, my God. What I hear is, oh, my God, thinking someone's died. That's what I hear. And, and that's the alcoholic brain. And people I'm so misunderstood about alcoholism. When I talk, they go, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. Like it does. Shielding alcohol away from the alcoholic does not work. A oh, complete change of neural pathways, which are self-sabotaging, needs to happen. That's why we use neuro-linguistic programming in our group, and we use brain spotting as well as somatic experience. All new stuff going forward. They've been around for a long time, apart from brain spotting, but they've never been used to the extent that we use them to say, hey, this isn't alcoholism is not a behavioral problem. It's a mind, it's a brain disease that you have, and we need to change the way you think entirely for you to get well, you know? Can you give me an example of, okay, using the example of if your wife is looking at Facebook and you hear her screaming, oh my God, how do you as the alcoholic, how do you switch it to understand how she means it versus how you are initially taking it in? It's experience and I still do it today. Yeah, I still do it today because of PTSD, I don't think it ever goes. You can manage it, you know, mm-hmm. but it never goes. So now I try and go, you know, oh, my God. It's like, oh, there's, there's Jay Bear again, just, you know, looking at something. And so I get to know it. But here's what never leaves me. When I walk into a restaurant, my wife knows that she sits with her back towards the wall, towards the door. I sit with my back against the wall. I'm checking all the exits. You know, when I'm walking down the street, I'm checking people around me. I'm getting a double lock. Is somebody looking at my Rolex watch? Is somebody looking at her bag? I'm, I'm scanning everywhere constantly. And it's bloody exhausting. Is what it is at the end of the day, but that's what I'm left with. I don't mm-hmm. drink anymore. Well, oh my God, I still have all the PTSD problems that, that I deal with on a daily basis, but they are manageable today. The more it happens, the more I get used to it. And so that is that what you teach the, yes. these families is and and the 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 ones dealing with alcoholism is is how to interpret or how to move through the world and and know what tools to use. Yeah, definitely. You know, the alcohol and drug problem when they come is that's gone in days. A compulsive drink will be taken away. Now let's look at really. The oh yeah, within days, people go, okay, I'm done with drink because we're so we're so good at what we do that we can change that thought pattern within a few hours. But and then everyone can stop drinking. Rosanna, can you stay stopped? Can mm. you stay stopped? Oh well, not really. And I'll tell you why. Isn't the stuff we just discussed? You know, we have to teach people today. That staying away from drink, you know, drinks the problem, you know, drink back. No, it's not. I was stood outside a liquor store one morning and it was 5.30 in the morning back in England, Manchester. It was snowing. Uh, it was below freezing. I'm sweating profusely. 
I have a t-shirt on, a pair of shorts, and a pair of flip-flops in the snow. I'm waiting for this guy to open at 5.30 in the morning. Now, he can't serve alcohol until 10, but he knows me. He knows that I'm suffering. I know from my own body that if I don't get alcohol inside me within 20, 30 minutes, I'm going to go into the deteriorating tremors. And I know that that could kill me. So he opens the door, I walk in straight away, he shuffles around the counter, I put my 10 pound on the counter, he puts the bottle on the counter, I'm shaking and I'm sweating, I've got a banging headache and I just want a drink. I grab the handle of the bottle and I go, my sweating stopped, the shaking stopped, the headache has now gone. Immediately, I'm in a fantastic mood. And I look at the shopkeeper, and I look back at the bottle, which is still unopened. And it was right there. And then I had my aha moment. It was, oh, my God, it's not the alcohol. Yeah. And that was, my, that was my defining moment to go back in and study more about alcoholism. And that's what I did. I was, in, I was intrigued. It's not the alcohol. So further tests we've done, especially with drug addicts, we go, hey, you know, if you relapse, let me know. And some of them have me go, okay, what was the most intoxicating part of the relapse? Was it the house when it happened? Because we never relapse on a Monday and drink. It's a week or two weeks before we relapse. We'll get into that if you want. But we mm-hmm. said, what happened? Well, I, I called the dealer, it was in, and I drove there, and I, I got some heroin, and then I injected it. Okay, well, which is the most exciting time? Because the heroin wasn't, because you was out in minutes or seconds. We found out that the most intoxicating part of that was the drive to the dealer, the drive to the liquor store is the most intoxicating part of the journey. It's not the alcohol or drugs. And that's, that's actually pretty anticlimactic sometimes. Most yes. times, isn't it? Mo- nearly all the time. But the, but, the, but the obsession of the mind tells me that it'll be different this time. Mm-hmm. I'm only get drunk this time. So then, but the, the, the drive there is intoxicating. You're in a great mood. You've got money in your hand. You're driving, thinking, I can't wait to get there. And you get there, bye, bye, bye. You hold the bottle, bye, bye, bye. And you go and drink, you're unconscious. So the trip. Is amazing, and that's what we concentrate on. It's like me having chicken pots and rice, and you say, Hey, you can see you got chicken pots. And I go, Well, how do you know? I can see the spots all over you. No, 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 that's the symptom of the chicken pots. What I have is a viral infection that you can't see that can kill me as an adult. It's the same with the alcohol, you can't see the disease, you see the bottle, you see the symptom of the disease. And when I say that to people, they go, Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. nothing to do with the alcohol the alcohol is a, a factor and, it, and it's uh, it's uh, it, it's it's there and we drink it but it's not the disease the disease centers in my head so what i was talking about before is alcohol will never come to me on a monday and go hey rob let's drink today never does that it's a day a week even a month before when my attitude starts to change when i start getting anxious when i'm pissed off with the woman who's still using the Christmas pen in the office that a mum bought her and it's now July. <laughs> you know, crazy stuff like that. That's where my <laughs> relapse is, you know, the snapping at a friend, the anxiousness, you know. By the time we get to the alcohol, it's done. You, if you go into a bar and order the drink, I don't know anybody that's gone, oh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to leave that. It's too late. It's already done. Once at the first drink, we can't stop. Have you noticed or seen any tendency for people who are working through this addiction to then transfer it to food or something else? Yes. Yeah. Nearly. Well, nearly always. Everyone has an addiction, first of all. Everybody does. Don't care what it is. Now, there are some healthy addictions and there are some not so healthy addictions. So the first thing that happens is the food and the sweets because alcohol has 
sugar in it and we're craving sugar. So we go to the sweet. So we have to watch that. The food is also a big one. You know, people eat because they're not using or drinking. They've got more time. So they think eat, comfort eat. So we have to watch that. But the gym, the TV, the girlfriends, the sex, the cake, whatever it is can spout off again. Because at the end of the day, it's self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. It's not alcohol. It's not drugs. It's not cake. It's not food. It's, it's self-sabotage. Why do I want to self-sabotage? After a period of time when everything's going good and it goes back to get off that chair, you stupid idiot, because I'm never good enough. And one of the best things I realized today, and this is all because I'm old, guys, not because I'm smart, is I'm never going to be blonde enough. I'm never going to be tall enough. I'm never going to be thin enough. And I'm never going to be rich enough. And when I accept that, I can I can work to a level that, that, that I can help people today. Because I got when we, we, forgot, we got married six years ago, and it was just like, if we just get 100 grand in the bank, life would be amazing. Oh, my God, I'd never worry about money and homelessness again. So we get 100 grand in the bank and a check and go, because if we had two, then, you know, I'm good. We got two. It's like, oh, what if we just had three? I mean, it never stops. Mm-mm. It never no. stops. And, and I still worry about losing everything, becoming homeless, because it happened so quick and it happened so naturally. That scared me. Scared me how easy it was. Now, I'm going to make you smile now, Rosanna. Okay. Three years ago, my eldest daughter got in contact with me on Facebook after 20 something years. And she said, Dad, I've seen you on TV. I've seen you on Facebook. You're doing really well. I want to meet you. I don't believe all the stuff that mom's telling me. So we flew over there and we met my daughter and my three month old granddaughter. And I held him in my hand. And you could have killed me right there. I'd have been a happy man. A happy man because it come full circle. Mm-hmm. That's what happens about the youngest daughter. She doesn't have a dad as far as she's concerned, but she'll come around eventually. My mom died of cancer, uh, but I did get to speak a few visits around. Um, and then she died. And my father was ill, but I got to make amends before he started suffering from, uh, he, had a, he had a brain hemorrhage or a stroke or something, and he doesn't recognize me today. But I get to put everything right before all that happened. And that's the most intoxicating part for me is we get to live two lives in one lifetime. Isn't that cool? It is. I'm not going to mess the second one up. We give a lot of money away to people. You have to be a one the parent family in recovery with child. Okay? And we will support you. We'll buy the Christmas presents. We'll buy the Christmas presents. We'll help you with the rents. We'll give you cash. You know, we're always doing this. because, And I always say to my wife, because we do give an awful lot of money away. And I say, that's it now. I'm not going to give any more money away. That's it. The next day I'm giving money. It's like I can't stop because I go back to the days when I was begging on the streets for 10 pence. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't want anybody to do that. I, I've, I've drove past a gas station and seen a woman there with loads of kids in the back squeezing out two, three dollars. I'm like, not on my watch. I'll spin around, jump up, fill the tank, buy everything she wants in the store and give her $100. It's like, I love making people's day. I love being there and I get to do that today. And I'm not bragging because I've got a lot of money. It's got nothing to do with that. Half of my money goes back to other people. You know, my book that came out about six months ago, there's no profit whatsoever made off that. Nothing. It all goes back into the people in the community around the world going, hey, do you need this? Because we'll send it to you. We bought a cocker in Manchester a couple of months ago uh, or a washing machine or something for a lady who couldn't afford it. And she was trying to buy a washing machine for like $100 or £100. 
We're like, no, we'll buy you whatever you need. So it was like 150. She bought one. So we sent the money straight. We don't even know her. It's a friend of my sister's. But that gives me that gives me such a high, you know, that I can get to do that today because I just love seeing. You know, we had met a young girl, me and my wife, once a couple of months ago in a restaurant, and she was great. It was busy, but she was really working at it. And we got talking to her at college. I think she was a one-parent family. I don't know. And so when she come along, we paid the tip. And we put nothing on the tip. You know, and we gave it to her and she looked at it and, you know, and then we give her a hundred pounds, a hundred dollars. And so that's because you're going to college, you're a single parent, you're doing the best you can. And she kind of cried in front of us. And it's just, how can I make your day today? It doesn't have to be monetary. When I say thank you to somebody, they think they're getting a benefit. When I say thank you to or compliment somebody, dopamine is released in my brain. I like that, you know, so it's a win-win all around. So I'm not going to go around being miserable all day. No. Mm-hmm. Listen, if someone's out there struggling, I might be the only face somebody sees today, and it might that might be my off day. Now, I could go back to bed now and sleep all day with depression. You would never know that because that's not my job in the world. My job is to inspire people, to be there for people, to go, oh, my God, I want that recovery that guy's got. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. I, I don't have bad days, but I do have better days than others. And it's getting better and better as the time goes on. I mean, it's just unbelievable. What is your book called? So when my daughter got in touch with me, uh, we were writing the book. And my wife said, remember the last thing you said to your daughter? And I went, yeah, it was Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. So that's what the book's called. Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, only on Amazon. All the proceeds, not the profits, as you hear some people pay, the proceeds, everything. The printing, we, we, we paid for the book. We paid for everything. Our distribution, we paid for. What you do when you buy that book is to give back to the community. We never take anything off that book. And that's what it's for. It's not, it's not, it's not for money. It's not, it's to tell my story. You know, and my wife kept saying, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I'm like, there's no way can I write a book. But I gave her bits, and she wrote the book. I give her bits of paper, bits of thing that kept scrambling my head. I can be driving down the seat, see her father with his with his daughter. The father's a bit drunk coming out of McDonald's, bang, six or seven memories of writing down or tell my wife and she, God bless her, got all this stuff and put it into this beautiful book. Oh, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. Only available on Amazon. Go and buy it, guys, if you can. I'll have a link for it in the Excellent. show notes. Excellent. What is something that you wish you could tell everyone, whether it's somebody suffering from addiction or a family member? What is, is there one message that you could give? to the alcoholic or addicts is this. If you don't feel good enough, if you think you are less than, if you think that you're never going to accomplish anything, I want to apologize to you because somebody's put that there. You are not born this way. You can do anything you want. I've proven it. What you can see in your mind, you can hold in your hand. To the parents, talk to somebody. Talk to me. Call me up. Call us up. Makes no difference. It'll cost you anything. In fact, when parents call us up, it never costs us anything. We talk to you as long as you want. You can call every day. We'll talk to you and walk you through this. So you're not alone. We're here for you. That's wonderful. (laughs) Now, here is what Dr. Rob could not have known. One of my favorite shows when I was a girl was Touched by an Angel. And if you never saw it, it's a show about an angel and how she would step in for people who were having crisis of faith, crises of faith. And 
it would always be at low moments or different points, and they were always with people who were angry at God and mad at God. And I don't know if I would go so far as to say I've been angry at God, but I've definitely been grappling with something for a a while that I just couldn't quite put my finger on. So when Dr. Rob told his story about the man, about the man who helped him get sober, who all of a sudden disappeared, I believe that without a shadow of a doubt. And I, I realized after that conversation with Dr. Rob, I don't know when, but at some point I stopped believing and I stopped thinking about that sort of thing and the possibility of that miracle happening in people's lives. So I was hit with the emotion and the memory of that throughout that interview. So once kind of the tears started to flow, it was pretty hard to turn them off. And regardless of what your faith is, I hope that you got something out of this conversation, whether it was a divine intervention and the understanding that it's possible for anyone, or an understanding that addiction is not about the substance. It never is, never will be. There is so much more there. I hope you get from this episode whatever you're meant to get from it. I have a link in the show notes for Dr. Rob Kelly's book, as well as a link to his website. Dr. Rob Kelly Recovery. If you know of somebody who needs to hear this episode, whether it's because they're suffering an addiction or they are the loved one of somebody who is, please share it with them. Please share it. And as always, thank you for being here. See you next week.